0: Please join me in prayer before I preach this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I humbly come before your throne, Lord, and I just pray that your words are my words and my words are your words, Lord, and I just pray you go before me as I preach this short message this morning, Lord, that it will edify each and every one of us and lead us further in understanding your glorious gospel, Lord, and we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, last week we discussed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This was to be the sign of Jonah, the only sign that Jesus promised that wicked generation. Today, we're going to have a short message since we have the Christmas play. But this morning, I want to bring us a bit further in our discussion about the fulfilled work of Christ. After Christ had suffered death to bear the sins of many, he would be established as the necessary sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. An important point to note is what exactly the world in this context is. We have already discussed the importance of keeping the story in its proper context. That would pretty much sum up the entire series, the fulfilled work of Christ in context, understanding the story as it goes through its full history, redemptive history going from Genesis leading up to Matthew and obviously from Matthew to Revelation. It seems to me that too many people are learning disjointed parts of the story, especially around this time of year rather than understanding the full context of what Christ came to do. And misunderstanding the full relevance of the story, we end up with somewhat of a different story, and it doesn't actually have the proper understanding that we need to really understand the full gospel that Christ came. The writings of the prophets of Israel are contained in what we know the Old Testament. It is these ancient writings of the people the people of Israel, that the promised Messiah would come to redeem them. He came as their Messiah. What we learn is that through Jesus Christ, who came during that first century period, to fulfill the longings of those prophecies, hopefully to be fulfilled in Christ, this Messiah would also be a light to the Gentiles. He would cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and also be the light. To the Gentiles, Yes, the salvation story was exclusive to God's covenant relationship with Israel. This was established through the law of Moses. Their relationship with God was through a covenant called the law of Moses. We might call that Torah. Jesus Christ came to fulfill the prophecies spoken of him through that covenant, the law, and ultimately through his fulfilling of it, he would do away with that covenant, that covenant that was identified by sin, death, condemnation, tears, sorrow, Those are characteristics of that covenant. Christ came to fulfill it and render it obsolete. A covenant which was utilized to lead all to their need for a savior. A law, if clung to, produced the works of the devil, which we would agree are death, disobedience. It was impossible to follow the entire law. That was what Christ came to destroy, the works of the devil. So, what world did Christ come to to take away the sins? You ready for this? Okay, in John chapter 1, verses 9-13, through 13, we read this. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of a natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. So, what world did Christ come into that rejected him? His own. I would dare to point out to you all that the context is cosmos. That's the word in Greek. Cosmos. The context of this Greek term cosmos, which means order of arrangement, that's translated world in our Bibles, is demonstrating that Christ came to the first century Jewish world. His own that he was naturally born into, but many of his own world rejected him. This sort of causes us to pause when we read our favorite verse, John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. What world did God so love that he sent his son to die? Jesus clearly says he was not sent to anyone but the lost sheep of Israel. The more we understand the historical redemptive story, all of this seems to make sense and we can arrive at a true and reasonable gospel of how we are in covenant relationship with God today. So yes, Christ comes into the world and dies as a sacrifice to create a covenant reversal. In doing so, the Gentiles, those who were far off in darkness, will glorify God. Why? Why would the Gentiles, those that were far off, glorify God? Because he came into a Jewish world and fulfilled their prophecies according to the book of Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier, the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, might reconcile both of them into one body through the cross by having put to death the enmity. What was the enmity? The law contained in ordinances. That was what made a dividing people, a Gentile and a Jew, or a Gentile and an Israelite. So last week we established that Christ died for Israel's sins. He was buried and rose again to give them a sign, the sign of Jonah, that would testify to that generation. It would either be the rising, glory, or condemnation for those that failed to put their hope in the Messiah. I think it's fair to say the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ serves as a sign for us today too. As last week I detailed how that impacted my life, that resurrection of Christ, and how that enabled me to come to the knowledge of God. But as you will see in weeks to come, we today, in the 21st century, have something bigger we can point back to to prove the work of Christ. I'll give you a hint. After the religious leaders asked Christ for his sign of authority, he goes on to tell them a parable. In Matthew chapter 21, if you remember last week we went over this, he says this. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug out a wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slave, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first. They did the same to them. But afterward he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This stone became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls, he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it, shall, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So indeed, after the resurrection of Christ, the looming thought is going to be there when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They knew who he was speaking about. They knew the coming judgment. It had to be going around in their heads at that time. This is where we get to the heart of what was prophesied about Christ. He will be the rising and falling of many in Israel. It is said after the resurrection of Christ, he appeared to them for over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about the Things concerning the kingdom of God he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem and wait for what the father promised we know at Pentecost the Holy Spirit baptism occurred sadly even at that point some seem to be confused regarding what Christ was going to be what Christ was going to accomplish they say to him Lord is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel Christ then explained that it was not for them to know the time or the details these were fixed by the father but he promised that they would receive power Scripture says, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently in the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. How did Christ go into heaven? Well, the text says that he rose into the sky, and then a cloud hit him. Then he went into heaven from the cloud. A cloud hit him as he rose into heaven. We could also posit that he rose into heaven glorified. Amen? We, in many texts, We read in many texts that the Son of Man will come in the clouds with power and great glory. This is what we read in Daniel chapter 7 about the prophesied ascension of Christ. This was assuring them that he would come. We know that much. Christ promised his disciples that he was going to his father's house and he was going to prepare a place for them. He promised that he was going to leave to prepare a place and would come again to receive them unto himself. He illustrated that he he was the way to the place that he was going. In the first epistle of John, we read that when Christ is revealed, we might be made like him. What does all of this mean? Well, if you have followed the theme for the last couple weeks as I've been preaching through this series, it's speaking about atonement. It's speaking about salvation being made right in covenant relationship with God Israel failed, they're coming under judgment it's being taken away from them and given to a people who will produce the fruits thereof, that's what's happening here, this isn't this new fantasy ethereal realm that they're going to go to no, it's speaking about atonement but speaking in very hyperbole and metaphoric terms It's speaking about Christ restoring the presence of God, remember it all starts at Adam, Adam failed, Christ succeeded Christ is reversing the whole thing. In the book of Hebrews, we read that the old was getting ready to vanish and the new would come. Christ's second appearance, apart from sin, would be for salvation. As one popular writer said, while some aspects of messianic blessedness was understood as being already in the ascension and the person of Christ, the tangible aspects of the messianic blessedness for the the saints were not yet. They were still waiting on something. That is the transition we're reading about in the New Testament. One cannot read the New Testament and not feel the imminent expectations of redemption, salvation, grace, and the time of reformation. Something was changing. This was yet future for the first century saints who were living in a time of an already but not yet context. But many erroneously believe we today are still living in that transition period. A, a transition period that was soon, at hand, coming soon, already but not yet. Yet. But as we will learn next week, we are not living in that transition period. Something was happening soon. I have inserted a blog of mine inside your bulletins this morning, and it details already but not yet. helps you understand what this period was like. Hopefully many of you will read through it, expecting next week's sermon and understanding when it was all made complete. A popular preterist, Jason King, said this, and I think this illustrates it perfectly. Christians today take great joy and comfort in declaring the completed work of Christ for salvation. In fact, such blessedness and assurance is naturally assumed and taken for granted. However, a careful examination of the already-not-yet construct reveals that the proclamation of a completed salvation and redemption for the saints can only be justified from a preterist perspective. And lastly, I must mention Christmas. Obviously, that's how we're going to sum this up. The fact is that history does not pinpoint Jesus' birth. Sorry if that's a shock. That's, history does not pinpoint this. Spring is most likely because shepherds were watching their flocks at night, and this is when ewes bore their young. In fact, around A.D. 200, theologians concluded Jesus was probably born on May 20th. So others have argued for dates in April and March, and we kind of go all over the place with these dates. It was in A.D. 385 that Pope Julius I declared December 25th, the day for celebrating Christ's birth. It's been said that he chose that date partly to challenge the pagan celebration of the Roman god Saturnalia, which was characterized by social disorder and immorality. So in light of this, and in light of the series we've been going through, let us recognize that a child was born. When he was born, doesn't really matter. A child was born, he conquered the works of the devil, and let us not get caught up in the conversations, whether it's a pagan holiday, and this god, and that god, and let us let people know this very simply. That child that was born was victorious. Bless you. Mike. Yes. Okay. Here we go. I'm stealing the mic.